collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. everyone. Today, welcome to another episode of Collective Power. We start off with really heavy hearts. Not so much because what's happening in Minneapolis and Kentucky is new, but because the the wound burst again. And it's a wound to kind of our society's been holding on and transferring back and forth for hundreds of years. So this is possibly the first episode I don't start out by saying I'm excited, right? I have today with me some like amazing human beings. Dr. San Sembaris, welcome, founding of Housing First, Supreme Dow, running for state rep in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Iqbal Hai, a city planner, and Erica Stewart, who's a housing activist. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's Iqbal Khayi. It's uh, in Arabic, so it's hard to say. I will learn sooner or later if you have some patience with me. Thank you all for being here. And the intention we set for this show is healing racism. At every beginning of each show, I ask uh, the folks who are our guests to create an intention with me. And so our intention today is healing racism, and racism, unfortunately, is the factor that underlies everything, right? It underlies housing, and it underlies the unrest, and it's underneath so much of the work still to be done. I know you guys were kind of deep in a conversation, right, before we went on air, and so I'm just going to hand it off to you. What do you want to say at this moment in time? It's interesting that we've given a uh, moment of silence because really that open-ended question just goes, and our response of, of silence just says a lot. It says a lot. It says that um, what we're going to say today has already been said for hundreds of years. Undoubtedly, we will talk about some... Um, Systemic racism, we'll talk about the how comprehensive racism is, is uh, baked in the cake of America. We'll talk about um, the pathology of racism. We'll talk about how, um, talk about how I'm just tired and how we all are tired. And what more, you know, can we say, but we really regurgitate what has been said. Um, so it's still worth saying, and um, the struggle continues. We have to move forward. Life is a struggle. 
as individuals and as communities, we all face an internal struggle. And so in that struggle, we have to continue to, to raise our voices and continue to um, speak about it. And then more than that, we have to also continue to act. We also have to act. We have to step outside of our comfort zone. Um, and uh, I've always said, I have a, a nephew who's a police officer. And because this goes on all the time. So a few years back, I was talking with him about this. And it's interesting because um, he's a, a young black man who really understands the the nature of this. And as soon as we started to talk about this police brutality, he turned blue, meaning he turned into a cop, into a police officer. And I looked at him and I looked and I said, is that you? He said, you know, when a police officer stops you and tells you to do something, you're supposed to follow his direction. And I said, and if we don't, do we get killed? And so he had to reflect and take a moment to think that he immediately turned blue. So I say that until um, black officers across this nation stand up and speak in a collective voice against this racist attack on our family, until they make a move to end this, it won't end. Until white people continue to stand out on the front lines and, and jeopardize their privilege and just step out and say, okay, this is enough. We understand it's baked in the cake of America, but just the blatant, the blatant racism and murder, because I call it state sponsored. When you have people who work for the state or the, the city or the, the government and they wantonly murder people and don't get charged or don't go to jail for life, then it's sponsored. So this is state sponsored murder that's happening to our communities. And um, though we're tired, we have to continue. I mean, although we're tired. You know, Supreme, that your state-sponsored comment uh, reminds me of the fact that, um, well, two things about what you said. The state-sponsored comment reminds me of the fact that it took over a month in the last shooting in Georgia where the police knew about the shooting, the district attorney knew about the shooting, and there was no action until people got organized after that video was released and pressured the system to change. And we're having exactly the same, you know, now Ferguson was the same way. Now we have Minneapolis. It's really the pressure to change is going to be us, you know, and how difficult it's going to be, uh, was also, I think, amazingly well illustrated by the conversation you had with your nephew. Because this is your nephew. This is like your own flesh and blood. And he was blind to his actions because he's part of that corporate-sponsored system of oppression that's been, as you said, baked, baked in, the, in the fiber of America. I remember when the Obamas went to the White House the White House built by black people and most of America built by black people. I'm reading a book right now about the early history of American psychiatry in Georgia. And um, there's this huge institution called uh, Milledgeville. 
it was at that time called an asylum for uh, lunatics, idiots, and epileptics. You know, this is like uh, 1840s, 1850s. So anyone who was aberrant in their behavior had these kinds of horrific. I'd probably be there. <laughs> yeah. <I'm just> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. I would be there too. Well, hysterical it didn't take much. For the women, we were hysterical. Yeah. No, it didn't take much. And in fact, what, one of the things that the author does is they document the reasons people are coming to this uh, supposed institute for mental illness. And it's all about the abuses of racism, of slavery, of the violence in the culture, you know, and the woman comes in and they say, well, she's yelling and very angry. And they don't document the fact that she just escaped from being a slave for 20 years where she was abused, you know, for every day. And in the work and psychiatry is looking at the immediate symptom and not what's created it. And she ends up the one in the institution. So this is 1840s, 1850s. I mean, have we ever really in America openly acknowledged in the way that uh, other countries are doing about their wrongs, the indigenous in, in Canada or the Maori in New Zealand? We're not even at the point of recognition. We're not even at the point of, you know, like step one in a 12-step process. Got to admit you have a problem. We're not there in America. We're still in denial. This uh, reminds me of uh, Biden. I'm just looking at the Washington Post. It was uh, something, a title that I read that made me want to read a little bit. It says, Biden says, country won't heal without addressing underlying injury. And this really speaks about what you're saying is that, you know, there is definitely, you cannot mask these, uh, this pressure that's been building. And it's not just for African American. If you're a human being, you feel this injustice in the U.S. And, and it has a ripple effect on how the whole country prospers. And so unless this um, injustice that's done to African-Americans, to immigrant communities, to women, to all the above, Native and Americans. more, and Native Americans and more, and to also white people, uh, because injustice is done when you're not really upholding uh, just policies and practices in a society while you claim to be doing so and tout around the world that America is about democracy, about human rights. We export all of this knowledge to the world. But in fact, we're very sick. So unless we really heal the underlying causes of this brutality, I don't think we can go ahead. And I'm really, again, sitting with my disappointment and anger and fear and real, real sadness to know that still today we experience brutality of such a dimension. Erica? I'm here. So I would definitely say that it starts with creating spaces like this space right here. So you have different folks, different genres, different backgrounds, but we all have a common interest. And that's the well-being of everyone having human rights and just having the ability to mentally fight for them. But as well, there are some of us that will physically fight for our human rights and our brothers and sisters' human rights. 
when you put those things in the context and trying to think about how do you make this shift, I'm a person that I can honestly say I'm not tired because I haven't experienced all of those traumatic experiences. I have mine in my personal context. What it has made me do is sit down and look at what part I play in those systematic and those approaches. And it's just like right now, understanding that what's going on is really a generational genocide that I'm losing my friends that are two years younger than me, five years older than me. And this has been going on, like Green was saying, for so many years. Um, and that's the part where I'm really tired about is that we're not addressing it. We're not creating more. Yeah, so just like just accepting the fact that bases need to be available and that education is like really the root of all of this. Because if you have teachers who are culturally aware, if you have teachers who are being hired that resemble the children who they're teaching, the approach is a totally different and it's a more therapeutic approach when we're talking about trauma, when we're teaching them these life skills and these different characteristics who make them into the adults who make a lot of these decisions, who have these interactions with the criminal justice system and police officers. So when we start with where those children are grown, they're grown in schools after they leave their home. So the first system is their family. The next system is education. And it becomes a snowball effect. But the thing about America is like we have our seven deadly sins. It's like we just keep doing the same thing over and over and over. And I see the change starting to occur now. But in the midst of the change, the trauma is still occurring based on the conversation we had earlier that a police officer was shot here in Philly. It feels like it's getting closer and closer and closer. And we have to accept that it, it's at our back door, it's at our front door. But we're making the strides to break that system down. And that's by having these different conversations. It's about your elected officials. It's about the folks that when we talk about the power of the vote, who you're voting for, why you're voting for them, and having conversations about what you want for your children, their education, their health care, and knowing that these are human rights. These are not just saying, like, hey, I would like for myself, hey, I would like for my family. No, this is what you deserve as a human being. And it's about that shift. It's about the shift of getting back to the root of all evil. And that's the part where I feel like the world is tired is, is the seeking and the searching. Now we have to do something about it. And that's where the power to vote comes in at. There is a statement in the Washington Post, as I continue to read, that really this is like now we see a lot of young people who are on the streets in Minneapolis. And there is an example of this uh, Moni, she's 22, holding a gun and uh, really outraged and screaming at the police. And she said none of this would be happening if the city had prosecuted the officers like involved in the death of George Floyd. I have a question. Why wouldn't would the Democratic uh, mayor prosecuted the officers? Why do you think it didn't do that very quickly? We move right into the pathology of it all, um, the sickness of it all, the sickness and pathology of, of racism. And if we're not going to really talk about, that doesn't mean I'm, giving up. That doesn't mean the, the fight ends. However, you know, when you've had it happen to you, of course, obviously I haven't been shot and killed, but when experiencing your daily life, the microaggressions, 
the blatant racism, when you're a victim of this all your life, you live in a constant state of trauma. Um, so we have families that live in a constant state of trauma. And when we live in trauma, personally, I think that's a strategy for community control. And so systems automatically go to that. So when you have a catch it on tape, if, you know, there was a saying, I, obviously, I don't know who said it, but there was a saying that went around on Facebook that they didn't arrest the officers because they saw the tape. They arrested the officers because we saw the tape. You know, the video. That's, That's true. Right. It's also a rap song, and and it's not that I am. Well, I'm not even gonna go. There. What they don't prosecute it because we don't see it. Well, they think we don't see it, and even when we do see it, they say something like, "Well, we have to see the whole tape." Do we really have to see the whole tape? Do as a public, do we have to live, relive this trauma of the whole tape to watch? Um, I think it was Michael Brown, a police officer. A young black man standing in the middle of the street with his hands up and a police officer just shoot, 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 shoot as he walks closer to him and just shoot this man down to the ground and watch him bleed out. Then to hear a, uh, an elected official or a politician or a pundit get on TV and say, well, we're America. We're better than that. Obviously, we're not. This is America. While we show uh, reruns of Tiananmen Square, reruns of, of protests in Hong Kong, or rerun, like that's not going on in our nation. We just surpassed 100,000 lives dead because of an, a sociopathic president who won't even lead or get the hell out of the way and let someone else lead because it's the pathology of this. I asked a question early on in our pre-cast um, that um, what does the person think of? What did the cop think of when he was walking toward Michael Brown, just unloading his pistol? What did the, the police officer in New York, when he was choking the life out of this black man, what did he feel? How empowered did he feel when he felt the life leave that black man? So I think you're saying something really important. And I think if we're asking the question, it's hard not to be involved into answering them ourselves. Like you ask the question and you think you have the answer, but we talked about the intention of healing. And if we're here early on this morning on Friday to discuss something that's going to contribute to transforming how we actually think about conversation for healing. And I think these questions are incredibly important to ask and to ask and to ask again and again, and to keep hearing and give people, those perpetrators, the opportunity to answer these questions because we are numb. From both sides, we come from like, we know the answer. But to me, somebody who takes somebody's life or oppresses or, or causes harm, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, it's really sickening. And I think it's time for us to actually go beyond this numbness to actually have accountability in asking the questions, what were you thinking? And if one policeman does not answer, 
the collective police force has to answer. And if not the collective police, the whoever is above the police. We have to have these questions asked directly and have clear answers to actually awaken this deadening and automatic responses that we see. Is it fear-based? Is it an egocentric? Is it millions or thousands or hundreds of years of white supremacy? Or what is it that causes a human being to no longer connect with another human being in a basic integrity of life? And to me, this is really important to do this exercise. The traumatic experiences that the officers themselves experience in a setting where they're basically self, they're incriminating themselves by what they have experienced as a human being as well. And it's not about justifying anything that anyone has done and killed anyone, but we all know that there are things that make people kill. There are things that trigger these different emotions. And I feel like the television shows, I feel like the education, the, the, the world is just like, and gross then, it does nothing but perpetuate the black man as an animal. It, it does nothing but perpetuate people of darker color as inferior. And, like, it's the same thing that's going on. But I feel like it's, it's being injected into the smallest children based on the cartoons that they're watching. And it starts with, like, in the house, what your children can watch. What conversations are we having with our children about how do you feel about these things? And like you said... What did you feel when you felt the life leaving out of someone's body? That should be a question that someone should have to answer with a psychologist. It can't just be a general question and it not be a space that they can honestly answer the experience that they experienced as well. Yeah, I think in addition to the personal responsibility, I want to talk about the institutional contribution to this, because this is not just the cop that's pulling the trigger. It's the, the entire system behind the police officer right up to the Congress, you know, in the White House. It's like there's systemic racism in America. All of those fingers together are on that, that knee, on that trigger, shooting people. We have become numb to the violence to the extent that these kinds of events don't even trigger an automatic stop or suspension of police behavior this is not like a, a 911. You know, it, it would seem that if a police officer has killed somebody in the line of duty and there's anything doubtful about it, everything should stop until we figure out what goes on. But it doesn't. It's just like business as usual. And those kinds of changes, like I can tell you, I work at the Veterans Administration uh, some days. And uh, if there is a suicide of a veteran on VA medical campus, it triggers a complete stopping of work for the people involved in the suicide. There's an internal investigation. And there's a congressional hearing into the suicide of the veteran. Now, this is a little bit tainted by the fact that it's all kind of a government liability because if a veteran is homeless and commits suicide on the street, there is no investigation of anything. Or if they're shot on the street, it's really about what's happening on that campus. But it's an example of a kind of a policy change, at least in that microcosm of the VAA, that there's enormous accountability when something awful happens, when someone kills themselves or is killed on the campus. And we don't have that kind of a 
stop action, investigation, consequence, accountability on the police force at all. We don't. And not only do we not have it, it's part of the wound, right? Part of the anger and part of like the outburst is that, like I was reading the stats this morning, like 95% of people who are incarcerated and have been incarcerated between 2000 and 2014 are incarcerated without a trial yet. So six out of 10 in the prison population are incarcerated waiting for trial. And that's a shift that's just happened in the past like 20 years. But when it comes to an officer, it's unconceivable to, oh, we can't lock him up. We haven't trialed him yet. What about the half a million people in United States prisons who are there awaiting trial. And so that gap of privilege is so astounding and so a punch in the face. It is just a huge punch in the face. And the other piece I want to add to this picture is, it's a really graphic image, but I'd like us to start looking at this systemically, right? I mean, start. I remember there was a time that my cat got hurt from a puncture. He got into a fight with somebody else. My cat got into a fight with somebody else. And basically, you know, there was pus coming out of the bottom of his paw. But the injury, the actual puncture, was on the top of his hip. And I was suddenly, like, I went to the vet terrified because I thought it meant that his whole leg was infected. And the doctor said to me, no, the way cats injure is that the injury's here but the pus comes out in a completely different area of the body because there are canals that are forming that are connecting one part of the body to where the other. So I'm saying that to say that police violence is a symptom of a very deep infection, as you were saying, Supreme, like baked in the cake of the United States from its beginning, from the beginning of each and every one of our systems. And when we look at it as just that cop, or that police department, we're not helping to heal the wounds underneath. And we have to be willing to go deeper and go there. But Rita, I think when you say we, I don't think most like African-Americans or maybe immigrants, I mean, it's hard for me to place myself. I grew up in Morocco and I just think that it's not we. I mean, you, you can see the progressive and the consistent violence with police brutality but it's not we. It's like we have to look about who is the we that you're talking about. It's specific people that need to be like, okay, so are we talking about putting something where are we electing certain people in Congress or certain people in our local governments or regional governments or and have them be accountable? It's like it's about accountability. All of this knowledge is already there. People feel so much oppression. But now, what is the tangible uh, actions that we must yeah. take? We'll definitely move in that direction. But our systems of accountability are baked into that racism because our systems of accountability are, are broken too. They're not broken. They're doing exactly what they're intended to do. So when I said we, what I was referring to is that numbness that you mentioned early on, Right. Like, we have to be willing to feel, white folk have to be willing to feel 
the pain we have caused over centuries. We have to be willing to feel it and not whine about it, but feel it, like really feel it and be there for each other through the grief of what we have done that has compromised our own humanity. And we have built white folk, predominantly rich white men, have built systems of accountability that don't work towards the reality we want to build from here. And yes, to your point, where do we have collective power? Where do we go from here? How do we not be hopeless in the face of this? I'm all in for that. One of the difficulties your solution-based discussion here is that in the process of white folk becoming accountable, that jeopardizes the concrete nature and pillars of this government. That's why a lot of times in, in my presentation of talking about racism, I say white folks have to be a part of a discussion that takes away their privilege. Mm, indeed. And that's really, really difficult because you're working against your own self-interest. That's why we talk. Then you're literally, you're saying that we're going to level the playing field in this nation. Some people will, will not be as powerful as they once were. You'll have to start buying your way into college. Well, we all do that now. But I mean, uh, like, I don't know what this whole Hollywood situation where people are paying off this guy to get their children into college. Got two months in jail. And I'm not sure that their children couldn't compete if they really took the time. Um, so you're talking about bringing folks to the table who, number one, and, I, and this is particularly white people, who want to control the discussion. This is history. Who want to control the discussion, and they want to dictate how the process proceeds and how we get to where we're going. And that's just not natural. The complexity of the reality of getting folks to work against their self-interest is the problem, is a part of the root of the problem, the right. source of the problem. Not only do we have to talk to people about the psychology of it, how does it feel, and the pathology of it, how does it feel when you take another person's life, but also we have to talk to the victims, the traumatic, and, and really listen to them. And then possibly get someone who lives in poverty, who hasn't graduated high school, and ask what is their solution and really respect it. What is your solution? But we don't do that because they don't have a PhD in anything. Life. They life. Have PhD, they have a PhD in life though. That's what they and, have. They have a PhhD in and life that, and in trauma. And that counts, yeah. I think that the self-interest, I'm not totally sure where it all comes from, but I think there's a huge economic piece to this under the umbrella of capitalism that has got to be exposed as part of the story. When they were setting up the early psychiatric hospitals before the Civil War, after the Civil War, people had rights, but the people in the South were very upset about, about the free slaves. And if you look at incarceration rates in the South right after the Civil War, where there were relatively few Black men, predominantly black men, and in jail, the percentage of black men in jail right after the Civil War began to go from 
and by the 1870s or 90s, it was already at 80 or 90% in jail. Going along with the prison system of the prison industrial complex, even at that time, that's prison labor leasing was legislated to be allowed. And you had all of these African-American men around the state. This is all about the state of Georgia. They were building the railroads. They were building the new capital. They were building the entire state at pennies. So slavery had moved from the fields and the whips to the prison with the guards. And still, we had slavery, the new slavery, the new Jim Crow. This thing has been going on for a very long time. And what drives it is the economic machine behind it. Yes. People who are captains of capitalism and, you know, white supremacy is not, you know, the the economic piece is is right there. So there's a piece that's like becoming really alive for me right now and helping me connect the dots. So Supreme, you talked about a cultural revolution on your episode, right? And the power of writers has been historically to shift the discourse, And I think that having the discourse be that white people need to act against our own self-interest, I'm not sure that discourse is effective. So here, like, I think that's only the case if as white people we're a bunch of people getting stuff. Like, if all I am as a human being is someone who gets to get stuff, right? The free pass to college, the higher paycheck wages yeah the wage the house like if all i am as a freaking being in white skin is getting stuff then it's against my self-interest but i have something to gain as a human by being able to feel my feelings before i harm another human being and so what's lost is my own humanity and what's on the line is my own humanity and that's the shift. It's not, I'm doing this to be nice to black people, and I'm doing this to like have people of color like me because I'm guilty about some ha- stuff that happened in the past. It's what is it going to take for me to regain my own humanity so that when I see a black person on the street with a mask, I don't twitch, but I say, that's my brother fighting the same disease I'm fighting. What is it going to take for me to not clench my purse because that's just my neighbor walking down the street? What is it going to take for me to have my own humanity be so opened up and so cracked open that my humanity is tied into yours and it is in my self-interest? You're talking about church. The issue with that is our full-time life. Um, I'm the executive director of the Black Writers Museum. And there we have ephemeral from the Ku Klux Klan at its inception. And there's a pamphlet we have that talks about the spiritual nature of and root of the Klan. So we're talking about people who go to church every Sunday and practice this, practice murder on Monday. And that's why I say you're talking about churches. So we're talking about a divine intervention or a revolution. Because we're talking about people who are convinced that they are spiritually grounded in what they're doing and saying. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say to Rita, is that 
you can speak about the I and your feelings and everything, but the context in which you're thinking is probably a whole different context in which people who are perpetuating these injustices and violence and all of this against other human beings, it's the context. And then some people don't have these issues of like, oh, I'm not in touch with humanity. And like you said, uh, Supreme, it could be actually justified by some kind of rationality. And this is really obviously what's dividing the nation you know, as a whole. There are some people who have, who see that they're completely justified by their actions. And how do you heal now these two different decisive or divisive groups? I don't know. It's a formidable uh, task. It's going to take something for the whole nation to actually come to this course. And right now we're very divisive. Yes. You know, we're living in the most uh, divided time. And I'm not sure that we're divided by race on this. I think there's probably unanimity that this was a horrendous murder. And the people that don't share that are in the minority. But I think the divisiveness is when things become politicized, the way the media presents it. I think left to our own devices, we are more the same than different. And yet we have these examples that stand out as if they represent the whole group. When the Los Angeles Police Department, the one that was leading the country uh, a few years back in the number of uh, murders, and they started to do um, kind of uh, human resources, you know, racial sensitivity, cultural sensitivity training for the whole force, it did nothing to change the rate. And so what it did, and they looked at the cops, there were 2,400 people on the police force at that time. But when they looked at the uh, statistics, it was only about 42 officers that were committing 80% of the violence. So for those 42, you need a different set of standards and accountability that's got to go throughout the department. You can't fix this thing with a general problem. This idea that Supreme was talking about, how did that guy feel, does at some level come down to the individual responsibility And that's a different kind of accountability than the systemic support of it. I mean, maybe we have to begin by detaching, you know, what is systemic and what is fueling and supporting these behaviors? And how do we separate that from individual responsibility? So I think that's where systems come in, that we have actually separated them and they need to not be separated. Because people build systems, right? So the way we numb our hearts is somewhat parallel to the way like a family reacts, the way an organization reacts, the way a politician reacts, right? So the politics and then the system as a whole. So that numb and react, like numb one day, rage the other, we're doing that internally and our systems are also perpetuating it. So how do we heal at all these different levels? I, like, I actually think what we're doing is not separating at all. Is like we're seeing there's a sort of shifting discourse, right? Not numbing, being willing to be with the impact. Like we're saying different things that are all dimensions of this bigger picture. Yeah, because they were, and for instance, with uh, Floyd, there was an officer with his knee on his neck. And then there were officers standing around. 
probably the officers standing around wouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. But they sure did stand by right. while the officer did it. We do have a, a small percentage of culprits, mm-hmm. but we have a system that supports the culprits. Like I talked about the complexity of this reality of it. At what point does a, an officer say you know, to his fellow officer, get your foot off his neck? Just stop. He's handcuffed. He's not an animal. It's four of us here and we have guns. These are the complexities that we have to deal with. You know, obviously it's not simple. So maybe we created the systems and we forgot that we actually created the systems and we become numb to the system, afraid of the system, afraid to challenge that we actually can transform the system. I mean, I think about it. Think about it. If you're putting yourself in the officers who are watching, and I'm sure at some point, some of them probably may cross their mind just for the reasons you said, objectively, that this guy is completely, cannot do anything. I mean, cannot harm them in any way. But what would have them have allegiance to the system? It's the again, these back in their minds, like, should I stand against the system? Or should, and I could be vulnerable, or should I actually step up and, or, or, or just cave into the system? And most of us, if you really look, we find ourselves intimidated by these big systems that we actually put together. And you said it right, revolution or something else, because we've gone too far and the murder of Murphy is actually it's under our watch. It's under our generation. And in at some point, we each of us can be accountable for that if we have not done anything to make a difference. Maybe this conversation this morning starts us off, but I can think of so many other things, religious groups, just actually changing the psyche of being enslaved to these big systems that we put ourselves to protect us. The uh, measure of a, as to paraphrase Dr. King, the measure of a man or woman is maybe what needs to be repeated every morning at the roll call for police officers is not the position you take in times of ease, but in times of hardship and in times of adversity, what position you take, because it it would have taken a lot for one of those, to me, it wouldn't have been. Uh, however, to, to others, it might have taken a lot to say something at that moment when their fellow officer was killing the, the brother on the ground. What measure will you go to defend humanity and not the uh, uniform? Because you're a human before you put on the uniform. Yeah, and that speaks to all the ways in what can be complacent or not. Mm-hmm. Right? I rarely watch those videos. And what hurt me was literally watching them looking in another direction. And I'm sitting here going, so whose role was it? Who was accountable to monitor that this man's well-being was there, right? Who was there? Who was actually paying attention to see if it was on the brink of vital no one? And so how many times do we look the other way? And how do we 
train ourselves to not look the other way, especially when it hurts. Sometimes it can feel overwhelming and that's why we look away. But the breaking the system, the shifting that I love what you said, revolution or divine intervention or both. Like, where is it that we train ourselves to not look the other way? That's one of the pieces of this picture. If we start taking that on, then divine intervention will happen. Divine intervention is not going to happen with us being complacent. Why? What for? <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Folks, it's been wonderful having you on this morning. And um, just being in the conversation that's kind of most alive at this moment in time. And... Erica, I, you've been quiet for a bit. I hope we didn't lose you over the phone. I'm wondering if you want to uh, jump in here for a second. No, I'm, I'm actually taking notes as everyone spoke because it, it was an interesting dynamic. It was an interesting dynamic, and the conversation needs to continue. A lot of times I'll have these conversations in more confidential um, environments, and the conversation kind of stays there. But everything that was said this morning really just had like the nail on the head when it comes to how we move forward and just having those conversations about accountability and what is expected of you in these different roles and within these systems. Great. As closing thoughts, coming back to our collective power, like closing thoughts around our collective power to foster the shift read a poem oh absolutely it's a little long but it's um, called the middle of the ring and i wrote this poem um two nights or no a week before another family member was murdered on the streets of philadelphia and um since this has become a poem that people have asked me to read at funerals and I'm reading it for a while because I, I start to think of it as a funeral poem uh, it's called The Middle of the Ring. Where is the movement? The movement to end racism and the oppression of Black and poor people in the United States' world. I'm not asking about a program, an initiative, a theology, or philosophy. Where is the movement? A verb, the action-based collective aspiration and mobilization to liberate. We have a growing Christian church ministry in this country that builds magnificent structures and temples of God that attracts tens of thousands of members every week. That's a movement, a movement of Black people going to church every Sunday. There is a prison system that receives thousands of inmates daily from across this country and houses hundreds of thousands, if not millions of young black men and women. That's a movement, a mobilization of our young into the prison industrial complex. Each and every week I watch as bearded Muslim men and garbed Muslim women travel to and fro on Friday, setting up vending stands prior to and after Juma services. Is all of this a movement? Where is the movement? Black nationalists write academic papers on the intricacies of oppression and racism. Five percenters draw up the predicament of black folk in heavy mathematic and scientific terms. Revolutionaries make noise, movies, and rallies to free all political prisoners. And all of this is yet independent, isolated, demarcated movement. But where is the unified network and collect collaborative effort to stop the killing of black youth by their peers and police? Where is the movement, the action, the drive to move some of the money tied to the church? collected before and after Juma, drawn up from high science and raised by revolutionaries to stop the bleeding and loss of life that plagues our cities because of miseducation, poverty, and self-hatred. 
all perpetuated by a way of a racist and classist state enforced by a three-branch government that rambles on and on about handling, balancing a budget and reforming entitlement programs. A movement, not a new CDC, Pop one of football league for at-risk youth. No book bag giveaway initiative or free turkey bag and trimming before Thanksgiving. Where's the movement that has teeth and bites and rips at the core of what causes our children to be so bitter and unloving? Where's the movement that grabs and shakes and paralyzes racists and neo-capitalists? Where's the movement that has grown from the streets and transforms the country? We need a movement, religion in the streets, philosophy guiding the intentions, high science dropped by the wise and change, a reality. Where are our movement people? Have we lost them to religion, culture, science, philosophy, and universities? Have we stymied the growth and extinguished the fire in the bellies of our youth that so desperately want and need a better life? Have we all just retreated to our respective corners, leaving the middle of the ring and the depths of our heart vacant, only to be occupied by the fighting of a left or right wing who need to control and condense our lives and communities. We need movement people, people of action, people who wear Timberlands to go to work, people who don suits to sit by the door and act, people who wear hooded sweatshirts, not to hide their identity, but to keep warm because the rumble is in the street, the middle of the ring. We need movement people who do more than recite hip ass poetry and underground rap lyrics. We need movement people that can and will do more than write tight program proposals and mission statements. Movement people move and act as they articulate. Movement people organize, plan, come together, then get in your face and challenge and don't play a seat. Movement people are old. Pastors, imams, deacons, rebels, thugs, just released, husbands, wives, girlfriends, homies, CEOs, city workers, the unemployed, underemployed, and gainfully employed. Thinkers, but doers. Planners, but risk takers. Movement people aren't convinced by a meeting or kind and calmed by a politician, and they stand in all of no one. Where are our movement people? Where is the movement? Who is in charge here? Can I speak to the person in charge? Because I see no movement, no leadership as a people, no movement toward a common goal or destiny. All I see is talkers, thinkers, writers, rappers, pontificators, politicians, and polls on TV. We don't need them. They are tired and worn out. For this movement, we need movement people, calling all movement people, calling all movement people. Time to stand up and do something. Calling all movement people because we meet and move tonight. Thank you, Supreme. Thank you, everyone, for participating. Thank you for the fire. Yep. Does anyone have any final thoughts or do we close out with a poem? Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.